Welcome to Lesson Impossible, an exploration of educational innovation. I'm your host, Aviva Levin. As always, I'm chatting with educators of all types who are on the forefront of pedagogy are making effective changes to old practices. Your lesson, should you choose to accept it, is to improve your teaching practice by being part of a professional learning community, or PLC. The special agent assigned to help you with this task is Chad Dumas from Iowa. In our interview, Chad quotes Peter DeWitt as saying, PLCs are the most hated term in education right now. As we discuss, it's not that there's anything inherently wrong with professional learning communities. In fact, they're fantastic. The issue is what some are labeling a PLC or what others think should just be information put into the body of an email. That's why it was great to talk to Chad, who is the author of Let's Put the C in PLC, a practical guide for school leaders. In defining what a true PLC is, how to start one, or make an existing one better, everything Chad talks about, from professionalism to assessment to working with colleagues, seems like something we as educators already know. But like most things that seem simple on the surface, engaging purposefully in a PLC can be a complex but worthwhile endeavor. In our chat, Chad and I talk about techniques for communicating well with colleagues and how that's not a skill that was directly taught to either of us when we were at school. Hopefully, this won't be true for another generation of students. And if you're interested in one way that I recommend to teach good communication, you'll find a link to the Lesson Impossible blog in the show notes, where you can find my free resources on using the talk strategy, or PARL as I've also adapted it into French, with K-12 students to facilitate positive small or large group discussions. Good luck on your newest not-so-impossible lesson with special agent Chad Dumas. Welcome to the podcast. I'm really excited to be talking with you, Chad. To start off, maybe you could give us a little bit about who you are and what your role in education is. Thank you so very much for this opportunity, first of all, to be able to engage with you and to share some thoughts with your listeners. This is really a great opportunity. I've enjoyed the podcasts of uh, this Lesson Impossible podcast so far. Thank you. So yeah, so I started out my career as a music teacher, a middle school vocal music teacher in Lincoln Public Schools, and had some great opportunities to lead some adult learning while I was there at uh, Mickle Middle School in Lincoln, Nebraska. And the adult learning bug really bit me as we worked together as a school to improve our practice and results for kids. And we were really honed in on improving writing at that time. And we saw results and it was really cool to see how we as adults could impact kids learning, right? I mean, in, in some ways, like now that's like a no dub, but you know, 20 some years ago, there people thought, you know, schools had no impact on kids sometimes. And so like, it was like really cool. And so um, went and served at an intermediate service agency where I worked with schools ranging with like 80 kids, K through 12, all the way up to 10,000 kids and serving those principals and teachers to, again, improve our practice and results for kids was able to then serve as a high school principal 
and then a central office uh, director of learning in a high poverty, high diversity district in South Central Nebraska. That was also, when I got there, a low performing district. They had been identified as one of a handful of, and you got to love these labels. And when I by mean love, I mean don't love. Uh, that, that states put on schools, uh, it was uh, labeled as persistently lowest achieving. Nothing like that to really encourage kids to perform. <laughs> Isn't that great? I mean, yeah, hey, you know, hey, I go to work every day at a persistently lowest, you know, not just lowest achieving, but hey, we are persistently lowest achieving. Yeah. So, um, so you know, we worked really hard to implement these ideas of what it takes to build a collaborative environment to make PLCs really happen. And uh, over the course of uh, my time there, then we, we had five of the seven school buildings were recognized as national models for improving student learning. Congratulations on making that, that change happen. And that gets to the heart of what I wanted to talk to you about, which are PLCs. Do you mind giving a definition for what that is? Before I do that, it, it wasn't just me. It was a wide variety of folks. So it's a, you know, and that's really what a PLC is about. It's us building a collaborative environment together. And in its simplest form, a PLC, professional learning community, is us as the adults, as the professionals in the building, creating a culture, an environment, an ethos, if you will, where we are working together as a community to improve learning. And there's really three very basic, simple, big ideas of professional learning community. And that is that we, we focus on learning, <laughs> that we're not focused on teaching, but on did the kids learn it or not? Second of all, that we're working together to do that because none of us knows enough by ourselves. So we have to access each other's expertise. And third, we use our results to, to do that work. And so those three big ideas, we focus on learning. We work together and we use our results to influence learning and through our working together. And that's really in a, in a nutshell, that's what it means to be in professional learning community. Now, there's lots of details and tools and tips and processes that can be used to facilitate that. But in its basic form, that's a professional learning community. Is there like any time that teachers come together, is that a PLC or is does it have to be self-identified to really count in your opinion? <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. You know, uh, like we come together as professionals. Does that count as professional learning community, so to speak? Uh, so actually I heard Rick DeFore, who, who really kind of is like the grandfather, if you will, of the, of the PLC movement in terms of that terminology. Um, I heard him say that he, he at some points wished that he had not referred to it as PLC or professional learning community. Because as soon as you, you give something a title, then all of a sudden it can be shot down, right? And, and really it's a way of doing things. And so uh, like a team meeting, just because we're having team meetings does not mean we're functioning as a professional learning community. I can uh, attest to department meetings that felt like I left and student learning was going to suffer because of that department meeting. <laughs> yeah. So you've got lived experience with this, don't you? <laughs> yeah. And many of us do, right? Like uh, uh, just because we're meeting doesn't mean that we're engaging in PLC. Like it goes back to those three big ideas. Are we focused on learning? Are we working together? And are we using our results to do that? Um, 
you know, that's what constitutes professional learning community. And so a time of the day is not PLC. A, a, a meeting is not PLC. A P, now, the, now, you need to have time designated and you need to have people who are meeting and there need to be things that we're doing to be able to use our results, right? That using our results means that we know what we're teaching, that we're clear about how we're assessing that, that we've got data that we're pulling together to look at to inform our practice and change what we're doing that we're changing our schedules and our structures and interactions with each other to be able to, to maximize our strengths as a team because we're working interdependently. Like all these things are part of this culture of PLC as opposed to a time or a place or a group of people, if, that, if that's helpful. That is. So if there's a teacher listening to this who hasn't had experience with PLC, that's one road I'd like to go down and talk to you about. And then the second road that we'll come back to is teachers that have had experiences with PLCs, but perhaps haven't maximized their potential and, and ways to do that. So to start with the first one, I'm a teacher. I'm like, that sounds amazing. How does one go about starting something like that? Like, does it have to be within your field, your school, like, or can you just grab a bunch of interested teachers and now you're a community? So ultimately, a professional learning community is like a school-wide endeavor, right? Like we as a school are working together to ensure learning for kids. If I'm a teacher and I'm, I'm on my own and, and we're not functioning as a professional learning community, I don't feel like that that's something that could be supportive. You know, we each have our realm of influence, our sphere of influence and control that we can impact, like, like you're saying. So, you know, I'm a third grade teacher and a, there's three of us on the team. What can I do? Or if I'm a, you know, a high school science teacher and there's three of us who all teach biology, what, what do I do? Or, or I just, I'm a singleton. What do I do? So um, fortunately, because there's like 50 or 60 years of research along this path and there's a good 30 years of actual practical application in classrooms and schools around the country, there's some things that we know work. And so I always go back to the four critical questions is what uh, Rick and Becky DeFore and Bob Aker would refer to these four critical questions. And so if I'm in a collaborative team of, or if I'm in a team of some other teachers, where do we start? Start with these four questions. Make sure you're crystal clear. What do we want kids to know and be able to do? Let's write it down. And, and some people might say, well, this, we have the standards. Yeah, and you know how long it takes to teach all those standards? Um, you know, Marzano did a study on, on standards across the country. It takes, I think it's 23 years to teach all of those. So kids would be in school until like they're 28 or 29 years old. You cannot possibly teach all those standards. <laughs> so, so let's narrow it down, right? And so as a team, let's look at our yearly standards and let's, let's say, what are we going to guarantee out of this? At the end of this year, for sure, the kids are going to have learned this. That's the first thing, right? Let's be really clear. And let's write it down. I heard someone once say, if it's not written down, it doesn't exist. <laughs> let's write it down. What do we want? And let's agree on it. And let's be really crystal clear about what we want kids to know and be able to do. Let's map it out during the course of the year when we're going to teach these things. That's the first question. The second question is, how do we know that kids know it or don't know it? So let's be really clear about what assessment tools are we going to use. And again, I'm not talking state tests, and I'm not talking chapter tests of your book. I'm talking, now we have broken down these essential concepts. How are we going to know which units are these going to be in? 
let's figure out what common formative assessments we're going to use to be able to tell us whether or not kids are learning it. And then questions three and four are related. Question three is, what do we do when kids don't know it? And one, question four is, what do we do when they already know it? And so that's then taking the results of question two, those assessment results, and acting on it. And as a team, we start to figure out what are we going to do differently to make sure that kids can, can get what we want. And the kids who don't, who already have it, how are we going to enrich for them? So, so if I'm a teacher, never done this before, I say, let's hone in on these four questions. And as a team, let's really uh, become clear about this. I love that fourth question because I feel that's not often a question that I have experience asking myself where often I am thinking, okay, like what accommodations am I going to be making in the class? And then when it does come to kids that need enrichment, that's usually a seat in my pants kind of response. Whereas having that really set up structurally and also anticipating that it is going to work and how, how it can work, I think is, is something that I should be incorporating more into my own practice. Seriously, you know, best case scenario, we have 20 some kids in front of each of us each day and there's one of us, right? And if I'm a high school or middle school teacher, I maybe have 150 kids in front of me. I can't know enough to be able to reach every single one of those kids, but if I access the expertise of my colleagues and together we work together to do this, the likelihood that we're going to be able to reach those kids dramatically increases. And I'll just say one more thing for those people who are singletons out there, you know, and I'm in a small school, uh, that I'm the only English teacher, I'm the only math teacher, or even if I'm in a large school and I'm the only uh, art, industrial arts teacher or the only home ec teacher, even you can get really clear about those four questions. And guess what? If you, you're not the only person in this country teaching that class, <laughs> if you are, I wonder why that high school is teaching that or that elementary school is teaching it. So, so find out from others, like network with others and do it together and say, Hey, you know, school hundred miles up the road, who is a teacher in a similar boat as me. Can we collaborate on this? Let's together figure out these, the answers to these four questions and work together in addressing that. I also think there's a lot of like intersectionality in terms of how teachers create these communities. I remember interviewing Nate Bowling and he was talking about the fact that like he was one of a lot of English teachers in his school, in his district, but he was one of the very few male teachers of color teaching or, or it was social studies in English, I think. And so he had created an online community of male teachers of color to to deal with like their unique challenges and celebrate the the things that they were doing really well. And just how before the internet, that would have been absolutely impossible. Yeah, the blessings that come to us with uh, the technology that we have and out of this COVID, we're now, we're all proficient. <laughs> well, maybe a year ago, some of us would have been like, Zoom who? What are you talking about? The, the car's going how fast? No, this is a platform. Let's, uh, <laughs> let's use it. So now, you know, like there's no excuse. We all know how to use these platforms. <laughs> so I've got this set up and I've got a like-minded department with me. And we've decided we're going to meet on Tuesday afternoons at 3.15. And we've got our four questions and we know 
okay, this is how we're going to do it. We've met again. And let's say we've outlined what the units are going to be and maybe what the formative assessments are going to be. Do we keep meeting as this is happening or do we just meet at the end to compare results? Yeah. So uh, I love how you frame this question of, you know, do we, we get it set up at the beginning and then do we meet throughout or do we wait to the end and compare results? And so what I love about this term professional learning community is that it not only has professional in there, but it's also got learning, professional learning. And so the, one of the, the biggest takeaways for me in the work around professional learning community is the impact is on kids, but the work is on us as adults. We are the ones as adults who are changing what we're doing. We are the ones who are learning new practices. We are the ones who are learning new skills. And, and so the professional learning is on us, even though the impact is on students. So it would be really tragic if a team set it all up and then just got together and compared. Um, because that, you know, I mean, that, that, what can we learn from that? Hey, you feel good about yourself. I feel bad about myself. Now let's go our separate ways. No, right? <laughs> <laughs> we get together and we look at our results throughout the process. So we can make adjustments and changes. And as we go, I see, ooh, Aviva, your, your kids are really getting this skill really well. Help me understand how you teach that. Like, would you model that for us as adults so that I can see and so I can pick up on that? And, and somebody else, you know, is maybe we all struggle with a certain skill. Ah, let's, let's do some reading. You know what? Let's go down to the professional learning library or let's go online and do some Googling on some ways that we can teach this skill better because clearly none of us on this team are getting it done. You know, so, so that learning happens throughout the process um, and not just at the end. I like that. My current soapbox that I keep dragging with me to all my interviews and then stepping <laughs> up on is teacher transparency and being really clear with kids about our role as professionals and really why the choices we're making for their learning journeys matter. And I, I think modeling this idea of constantly learning from each other is so great because like when you say, oh, I'm doing this lesson because, you know, Ms. McBurney down the hall, I heard her do it. It was so great. She showed me how to do it. Now I'm going to do it. Like it's really showing kids that we're trying and learning from each other too. Yeah. Yeah. Transparency and vulnerability too. Yeah. Yeah. It reminds me of, uh, yeah, I'm sure you, your listeners are familiar with John Hattie's work. Um, and John Hattie's an Australian researcher. He's kind of like, if you've heard of Marzano, he's like Marzano on steroids, <laughs> where he, he takes all these research studies from all over the world and all these meta-analyses and he look, looks at all of them and says, okay, what strategies, what categories of ideas have the greatest impact on student learning. And uh, I went to a training with some of his associates a few years ago. And, and I remember what the associate saying how uh, John Hattie was um, disappointed in the way in which his work had been taken by a lot of folks, because some folks have taken his list and say, oh, their number one is better than number two. You better not do number two. Um, right? Or number five is better than number 10. Don't do number 10. And, and that was not his point. That's not the conclusion that he drew. The conclusion that he drew was that everything works somewhere and nothing works everywhere. And so as 
practitioners, while everything works, it may not work with me and with my kids and my content area and my grade level and my demographics. So I have to be a thoughtful practitioner in this. And one of my takeaways from, from his work, and he's got a, he's got a book called, uh, it's called Visible Learning. Uh, and he's got a book, Visible Learning for Teachers, which is really nice because it, it takes away all of the research jargon and puts it in like more practical terms, you know. And in, in there, he, he says that, you know, what we have to do in schools is flip the paradigm that what this research points to is that schools that are effective are schools where the students become teachers and the teachers become students. And what I interpret that to mean is that students are the teachers. They're like, they're clear about the targets. They're clear about how they're getting there. They're engaging in activities to help them get there. They understand the teaching and learning process. So they are like the students are becoming the teachers. And on the other hand, the teachers are becoming the students because the teachers are reflecting on their practice. They're the learners. They're thinking about what's working, what's not working. I'm, I'm questioning my practices. I'm trying new things. I'm engaging in action research to see if it's actually working. So I, th I think that's an interesting uh, dynamic where, and that's what a professional learning community is, right? We are coming together, engaging in inquiry into our practices to impact student learning. So that's fantastic. <laughs> and that's very exciting. And I like that framework. Let's go to the teachers that have been invited or have been part of PLCs in the past, but maybe don't have the best experience with them and maybe run through some scenarios and your advice. <laughs> okay. So my, my first thinking in the P in the professional part uh -huh. is I've met some teachers that have been like research. I don't need to do research. I know, you know, you know how to teach or you don't. How do you encourage colleagues to engage in seeing value in what our academic colleagues are doing and researching and, and writing on? I love this question, this idea of, um, you know, maybe I don't need to, to draw upon others' expertise because I have my own expertise and experience, yeah? Several things come to my mind in this regard. And the first thing is, uh, I remember hearing a study recently, I think Peter DeWitt talked about it, where he said that the the most hated term in all of education right now is PLC. Really? Yeah, by educators. Um, and it breaks my heart. And I also understand it because we don't truly engage in what it means to be a PLC. You know, we think it's a meeting or, you know, our administrator tells us what to do or, you know, it's a waste of time or whatever. And so, so that's the first thing that comes to my mind is, is we as a, as a field need to do a better job of being clear about what these things are and then making them happen. So, so I don't fault uh, an educator who feels that way because they've had those bad experiences. And who am I to tell them that those experiences are, are right or wrong? Those are their experiences and that's what they've had. So, so that's the first thing is I think we have to come at it with a sense of understanding of where people are. The second thing that comes to my mind um, is in regard to that understanding 
is to find out more about what they're what what they mean by do I understand this or not uh, or you know do I know enough? My experience is that through some conversations with folks, we can get to the root of the matter. Um, and ultimately, the ultimate trump card, if if you want to want to go there, is that we are a profession. Any profession, by definition, like the definition of profession is that there's a body of knowledge associated with that profession. The medical field, doctors have a body of knowledge associated with that. Lawyers, there's a body of knowledge associated with being a lawyer. There's language, there's knowledge, there's skills, there's research, etc. As an education profession, the profession has a body of knowledge. And that body of knowledge is around teaching and learning. And so if we want to, uh, if you will, ascribe ourselves to that profession, then it, it behooves us. I'm going to use some good words here because I like, I like words. It behooves us. It is incumbent <laughs> upon us. It is obligatory. Uh, I don't know. These could be like some words of the day type thing here. Am I using strong enough language? As a profession, we have to know what that knowledge is. And so, um, you know, the, the, the ultimate trump card could be that, you know, if, if you don't want to engage in the profession, that's fine, then find another profession. But in our profession, there is knowledge, there are skills, there is research. And, um, and, and we need each other. Like, there is no way that any one person can meet the needs of every kid um, every day. And so we have to rely on each other to, to do that. All right, was that hard-nosed enough? <laughs> I I mean, I like it. I I think we need to emphasize we're a profession because I think if anything, we're starting to learn in the parent backlash during COVID that sometimes we're just seen as glorified babysitters who, you know, randomly pick up picture books or textbooks mm-hmm. and start teaching. And I think the more that we explore and identify as professionals the better I think everything gets. You know, to to carry out that analogy of a lawyer or a doctor, you know, think about a doctor. If I were to go to an eye doctor and say that, you know, I've got bad eyes, you know, I've been wearing glasses since second grade, so I've got really bad eyes, and I could have LASIK surgery done. And if I went to an eye doctor to have that done, and the doctor said, you know what, we don't do LASIK around here. Uh, I know that they've been doing that and that there's some research on it, but you know what? I really prefer, I I went to school in the seventies and the way that they taught us to do it is to, to do this other procedure where we actually cut your eye open and, you know, make these with an actual razor blade and you have to lay really still and you're going to be out for a month. I, I don't buy this LASIK thing, you know, even though you can be done in a couple of hours and be out you know, come on, how many people would go there? <laughs> right? So it's same with us as, you know, uh, just to, to take that analogy a little bit further. I mean, it, it sounds asinine in the medical field. It's also asinine in the education field for us not to be, to be re- relying on more up-to-date modern uh, research. So then for the L part, the learning part. Yeah. Deciding on 
the assessment. I know that one of the debates that we had was, okay, we're going to use formative assessments, but does anecdotal experiences from either the teacher or the students in reflection, is that strong enough evidence that something is working? Or do we also need to, let's say, have a common pen and paper test or a common task that everyone needs to do to demonstrate proficiency? Ah, you're getting into assessment literacy type questions. Like, (laughs) Like how much do we need to know about assessment practices to be able to do this work well? And there's a, going back to some research, there's some really good research that says the better assessment literate teachers are, the better able to meet student needs that we are. And so uh, this question that you're asking just like gets to the heart of assessment literacy. And so when you identify that first question, what do we want kids to know and be able to do? We need to be clear is, are we talking knowledge? Like if it's knowledge, then you can assess that on a paper pencil. Is it a skill? If it's a skill, paper, pencil could work in like maybe mathematics, right? If it's skill-based in mathematics, but it probably multiple choice gets a little tough because I'm going to need to be able to actually see these skills happening. Is it a reasoning task where they're actually applying their knowledge? Is it a product like in art? Like it would be really not very wise to have a, a target for kids to learn like how to sculpt something, but then give them a paper pencil test, right? They're, they're, so we have to match the kind of target. Is it knowledge, reasoning, skill, or product? I call that crisping it. <laughs> R-S-P. <laughs> so we've got to crisp the target, knowledge, reasoning, skill, or product. And when we crisp it, then we identify, okay, what type of evidence will we use to accept? And is it a selected response test? Is it a written, an extended written response? Is it a teacher observation, as you mentioned? Like, I'm a vocal music teacher. A lot of my stuff was observational, right? I'm listening to the kids. And am I hearing that they're matching pitch? Are they able to sing in intervals, etc.? So then, once we're clear on that, now we can figure out what our assessment tool is. And the key is that it's common. And, and I think maybe what, what you're getting to is, do we have to give a paper-pencil test? No, we don't have to be give a paper pencil test. We do need to be clear about what we're doing and be common with it. Like some of the most effective common formative assessments I've seen are an exit ticket. We as a team, we determine what one or two or three questions are we going to ask kids at the end of a lesson and the kids write it on a three by five note card. Heck, I've even seen it. This is really cool. Elementary classroom. Kiddos wrote on a little note card. Each teacher gave their kids a, di- uh, a different color. So Mrs. X gave her kids a, like a, a neon yellow. Mrs. Y gave her kids a green and Ms. Z just gave a white. I use Ms., but you know, you get the idea. And so then each teacher, all the kids got the same color note card. They answered it. Then while the kids went out to recess, those three teachers met and they looked at their piles and they piled them by misconception. And so they saw these kids have these misconceptions, these kids have these misconceptions, these kids have these misconceptions. And the color-coded note cards was because then they knew which kids in which class. So then when the kids came back, then the kids who had misconception A, teacher X took all those kids and worked on that. 
And kids who had misconception B, teacher Y took all those kids. And kids with misconception C, teacher Z took them. And so then they went into their classrooms and quickly, easily were able to then, you know, divide up the kids, spend 10 or 15 minutes reteaching, re-intervening, figuring that out, and then moving forward with, with the next day. So, so like simple little tools like that, it doesn't have to be a formal test. Uh, the simple, small, formative things are so much more powerful. I like that. I like the idea of that instant response. Mm -hmm. That was something um, I taught in a semester school. So I got to see the kids every day for half the year. Um, And there was just something so powerful when we had like a block rotation where I'd see the kids on Monday at the last block, but then on Tuesday, I'd see them on the first block. Oh, sure. And Mm -hmm. I do, I mean, it's very elementary, but the kids didn't seem to mind. I did like the stoplight exit. Uh So I'd say like, did you understand? And then they had to show their understanding on the sticky note and like they do a quick, you know, write this sentence or whatever. And then did you understand? red, yellow, green. And then what was interesting was like kids that didn't think they understood, but actually got it right. That was always my like, oh, that's interesting. Like I'm clearly not explaining what the target is. If you think you haven't met it, but you have. But then when I saw them the very next morning and we talked about it versus in a linear school where I wouldn't see those kids for another day and like a half, Mm -hmm. That was just more impactful for learning than I realized when I was teaching in the yes. other system. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great way. Like, yeah. Sticky notes on the door as they walk out color co- or color coded or, or categorized by green, yellow, red, green. I got it. Yellow. I'm still a little fuzzy or red. It's, <laughs> I, I don't know what's going on here. <laughs> I woke up too late and didn't get my, my uh, Cheerios for breakfast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on to that C, the community part. Yeah. We're always going to be different humans from different backgrounds with different goals and whether or not we had Cheerios in the morning either. (laughs) How do we maintain a collegiate environment in our community? And I say that as the type of person who, when I get really excited about something, I want to go like 10,000 miles per hour with it. And so I'd be the person who was hated by someone in my community who'd walk in and being like, we're doing this and we're doing this all in. And then I'd be frustrated by a person in the community who was like, well, let's do 1%. Like, I know that I haven't always been the best community member myself, like, are there good strategies? Do we lay ground rules? Do we do a lot of community building before we even get to asking those questions? Like, how do you see the best communities working? Yeah, so there's lots of great, there's a whole field of research on interpersonal dynamics, right? And what works and what doesn't work. And um, I've actually been very fortunate to do some work with the adaptive schools um, organization, uh, which is out of, which is linked to the thinking collaborative. And the adaptive schools work came out of cognitive coaching for those listeners who are familiar with cognitive coaching, where cognitive coaching is really honed in on -on one-on-one interactions, how to help individuals navigate where they want to go and help them become more efficacious. There's another good word. (laughs) Uh, I'm full of good words today to become more efficacious in the work that they do, more effective. And so uh, that cognitive coaching work was going on. And what the founders, Bob Garmston and Art Costa, found is that you can have individuals 
who are really skilled um, at teaching, at learning, at their practice. They can be really wonderful people, one-on-one, etc. And you get a group of people together, three, four, five, or more. And man, it is like pulling teeth. Like it's it's horrible, right? And I think that's partly why PLCs have a bad name too, is because like we come together and nobody taught us how to collaborate. I went to university in Nebraska, you know, one of the premier universities in the entire world, if I might say. You may. <laughs> I, I may say it. Whether or not it's true, I don't know. But, uh, <laughs> nobody taught us even one day, one lesson, how do you collaborate with peers? And I'm pretty sure that the University of Nebraska is no different than any other school in the entire country or world. Like we're just not taught how to collaborate. And so there's a whole science around that. And the adaptive schools work really gets into that. Now, that's like a four-day training that, that I and others do in that regard. But if we could just like hone it down to like a few skills that could really help, my mind comes to two, two things. One is a set of skills, and then one is a set of practices. So skills, and I talk about these uh, in my book, but you can just Google these and you'll get a lot. I refer to them as the three plus one. The one is rapport and the three are the skills of pausing, paraphrasing, and posing questions. So you don't have yelling your point really loudly for the third time as, <laughs> as one of your methodologies? That's weird. No, I know. Isn't that crazy? It just doesn't work. Um, <laughs> but what does work is pausing and paraphrasing for somebody else. And, and my experience is that when people are yelling or when they say the same thing over and over again, it's because they don't feel they've been heard. And by using those one, three plus one skills, people feel heard because I have now paraphrased for you what you've said. And you have an opportunity to correct that or to agree. And now I am clear about what you've said and you are as well. So, so that paraphrasing and the pausing is important because the pausing allows us to think. It allows us to breathe. It creates a space for the brain to function because the fast part of the brain is down here in the back, the amygdala. That's the, you know, so-called reptilian part of the brain. That's quick. The slow part of the brain is way up in the front, the prefrontal cortex. And that's where the thinking happens, right? The, the reptile part of the brain back in the back, that's where the fear happens. That's where the anger happens, these emotions. And so when somebody's yelling and angry and, you know, that's because they're operating back here. We want to get up to the front of the brain and, one tool to help with that is pausing, taking a breath, getting the oxygen flowing, <sighs> pausing. Then when I paraphrase for someone and then posing a question, inquiring into their thinking, tell us more about the, your, some of the beliefs you have around that. Tell us more about your assumptions into this activity. Tell us maybe some more specific details about what you saw happen there. Yeah, right? so, so you're getting into this posing questions. And if you do that, with rapport, where we're in physical rapport, this can really move group dynamics forward incredibly. So the three plus one, those are skills. On the practices side, so if you're somebody who's like, yep, yeah, yep, yeah, yep, yeah, I'm, I'm good with that. I pause, I paraphrase, I pose question. Okay, here's, and we still struggle. Here's some skill or some practices that may be helpful. And I'll share uh, four practices. So the first practice is around an inclusion. When we come to our meetings, 
um, typically we're not thinking about the meeting. We're thinking about what just happened in my classroom, a phone call that I just got from my spouse, uh, the fight that I just had with my child on the way out the door this morning, the vomit from my dog that I cleaned up in the living room. Right? I mean, we're not thinking about the meeting. And so we need to think about the meeting. So how do you do that? You do that with an inclusion activity. Some way, not an icebreaker, because that'll tick off half the people. and We don't want to break the ice. We do want to include people. And so some way to first focus our mental energy, second, to get everybody's voices in the room, and third, to build community as we connect with each other and with the content. So an inclusion activity, no matter if it's a 15-minute or a multi-day meeting, some kind of an inclusion activity at the beginning. And that can be as simple as, dear friends, you sent, we sent out the agenda in advance. Maybe you didn't have a chance to look at it. I don't know. You have it in front of you. Of these agenda items, which one is most intriguing to you? Please turn to a neighbor and share with them. 30 seconds. That's an inclusion activity. We're going to get, we're going to focus our energy, mental energy on the agenda. Everybody's going to have a chance to talk because they're turning to a partner and we're building community with each other as we talk with each other and we connect with the content. So, so that's an inclusion activity. The second two practices are closely related. First of all, having clear outcomes. People want to know why they're in a meeting. They want to know what they can contribute to the meeting. And they want to know afterwards how they're going to move forward in helping out with those outcomes. So clear outcomes, have clear outcomes, the most important thing about any meeting. The third practice is having a clear agenda. And I link outcomes and agenda because they need to be aligned with each other. <laughs> Sometimes we go to a meeting and we think that the meeting is to uh, understand something. And then we come out and we were just given information. Nobody really understood anything. We were just like, put it in an email, please, right? Like, like so, so make sure your agenda and outcomes are aligned. And then the fourth practice is to have what, what some people call norms, other people call working agreements. And these are just ways that we agree to get along. Like, do we agree to start on time and end on time? If we don't agree to that, okay, that's fine. But if we do, then we need to do that. Do we agree to stay focused on the task? Do we agree to have the agenda out so much in advance? Do we do agree to shut down our devices? Do we agree to be fully present or not? Like these are things that we just need to come to agreement with. If we don't, if we if we're fine not starting at any time, that's okay. Then then put that down as an agreement. We're going to start whenever we want and we're going to end whenever we want, right? <laughs> Most people I know are like, no, we need to start on time and end on time because I got to go pick up my kids from daycare. Well, let's write it down. Let's be clear about it. So the three plus one in terms of skills and those four practices, um, inclusion, outcomes, agenda, and norms or working agreements. So to conclude... What, and maybe you don't want to answer the first part of this question, but what is sort of like the worst manifestation of PLCs that you've seen and what are some of the best? Oh boy, that is a really good question. What are some of the worst and some of the best? The worst, I don't know if it's a manifestation of PLC or implementation of PLC. How about that? The worst implementation of PLC is when we think of it as just a time of the day and a group of people who are going together and we're not really doing the work. And in some cases, harming ourselves and children. You know, Michael Fullen says that uh, groups are powerful, 
they can also be powerfully wrong. So, so it is possible for a group of adults, whether it's educators or anybody else, to get together and actually come out worse than they came in. And that is no bueno. That's no good. <laughs> um, and so, uh, so I think that would be maybe the, the, the worst implementation, if you will. Um, now, there's a, there's a continuum, right? Like that's, that's like, we don't really know what we're doing, but we're getting together and we're doing what we're told to do, whatever, right? All the way up to like the, the, the highest implement levels of implementation. And I've seen some really incredible work in this regard where the teachers are empowered, the focus is on learning, there's innovation happening at the teacher and classroom level. Like it's not top down from the district office saying, here's the innovations we're going to do. No, it's bubbling up because groups of teachers are focusing on learning. They're using their results and they're working together. And through that, they're finding new and innovative and creative ways to be able to meet the needs of kids, both on the intervention and the enrichment side. And where we find entire school working together in that way, like as a system where you're art and music and PE teachers who are sometimes kind of on the fringe, like that's where we send the kids so we can collaborate, where, where no, they are part of us as well. And we're working together. I'm thinking of a school where like the first grade team and the PE teacher did incredible units with kids and the fourth grade team with the music teacher. And like, like we are, we are in this flow. There's this synergy where we're all working together. We're focused on the big ideas. We're using those four critical questions. And through that work, there's high levels of energy. Oh, I remember this one teacher who um, my, my first year in this particular district uh, was counting down the days to leave. And I think uh, this person had two years until retirement and was literally counting it down. And uh, when retirement time came, they didn't retire. And they're still not retired. I think it's been seven, eight, nine, ten years since then. And the reason why is because they love their job so much. Because there was this energy and enthusiasm, an amazing teacher, incredible teacher, one of the just incredible. Um, but anyway, that there's that level of energy and enthusiasm and support and excitement because we're doing the work that is meeting the needs of kids. And, and there's nothing more exciting to an educator than knowing that you're having an impact and seeing that individually and collectively. So how can listeners find out more about what you're talking about or follow you on social media? I, of course, will put links uh, through a link in the show notes. Yeah, absolutely. So I have a website uh, through my business is Next Learning Solutions. So the website is nextlearningsolutions.com. And uh, the, probably the easiest way to reach me is just to go to Twitter and put in my handle, which is at Chad Dumas, C-H-A-D-D-U-M-A-S. I was early enough on that I didn't have to do, you know, underscores or numbers or anything like that. It's just simple. Me too. You know, all right. Just nice and easy. Chad Dumas. There's two Ds in there. <laughs> and for those of people who aren't on Twitter, that's okay. You can still go on to Twitter and look me up even without having an account and look up at Chad Dumas. And then on my page, there's links to my website and, and the book and, and um, some resources and things like that. So that's probably the easiest at Chad Dumas. 
Well, thank you so much, Chad. I appreciate your time and expertise and in, in telling us about something you're clearly passionate about. I know for me, it's going to change the way that I approach working with my colleagues in the future. And I hope a lot of listeners feel the same. My pleasure. Thank you so very much. And I'm glad to hear that. episode will not self-destruct in five seconds, but will remain available on your preferred podcasting platform. Lesson Impossible is proud to be one of the many amazing school rubric podcasts. Links to resources or people we mentioned and information in general about the podcast can be found at lessonimpossible.com. If you enjoy the podcast, you can help other listeners discover it by rating and reviewing on iTunes forwarding it to a colleague, or posting a link in your favorite educational chat. This has been Lesson Impossible, and I was your host, Aviva Levin. 